20 to 22. Well, I am still debating this question. In 20 to 22, are these the false teachers or are these those who follow the false teachers? sure the answer. I've been I've gone back and forth as I've read different commentators. <laughs> the majority of them seem to think they are the false teachers. The argument for that in part would be that's what the chapter's about. We wouldn't expect the chapter to end on a different note than what it you know was all the way through. However, there are some things about it that I think my first thought had always been it was those who were being deceived by the false teachers. So I'm willing to leave that open. I'm just not sure. It doesn't make a lot of difference. The point's still the same. You know, you escape the defilements of the world. You can go back to verse, chapter 1, verse 4, escaping the corruption that's in the world by lust. They escape it by the knowledge of God, and that goes back to chapter 1 uh, as well, 1-3. Um, but if, if they do that, and then they are again entangled and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, that's, that's amazing. They're worse off than they started with. In fact, he said, it would have been better not to know the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the Holy Commandment. That is not what we'd say, is it? We'd say, well, at least they, you know, accepted Jesus as their personal Savior when Brother So-and-so preached here ten years ago. Or at least, from our perspective, they were baptized, you know, 20 years ago. At least that. That's not what Peter would say. He'd say, well, it would have been better off if they hadn't been. It would be better off if they hadn't been, you know, come out of the world and into the Lord, if after doing that they were going to return. That, that's how bad it is. It, it's Matthew 12. That little story that Jesus tells about the demon that leaves the man. And he goes to waterless places and he comes back finally and he finds the man's house swept and unoccupied. And he goes and he finds seven demon buddies and they all come in and live in the man and the last state of the man's worse than the first. You know, because the guy who's been converted and then goes back is often more corrupt, harder to reach. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just more... It's more um, it's more disappointing. It's more disheartening. Think about in hell. How would you feel if you had done what's right? You turned to the Lord. You've been forgiven. You'd experienced the grace of God. And having all that, you turned your back on and went back into the world and were lost. How would you feel then? That's even more horrifying. You had all of that. And then you just turned it over. 
Hey, obviously what he's trying to do is get them not to do that. Don't be the dog that goes back to his own vomit. That's disgusting. That's gross. Man, you know, that's just really ugly. Or, or think about the, the mire the sow wallows in. You know, we're not thinking of some clean mire here. You know, and think about you, get her all washed up. And then she goes back and wallows in the mire. So disgusting. We need to be bolder in what we preach about the consequences of self-indulgence. This is what it looks like when I go back to being a slave to my desires. It's just going back to your own vomit. It's going back to wallowing in the mire. It'd been better never to have known it. Comments and questions. I wonder if this could apply, if this could be talking about both of them. But the, it could be talking, I was thinking about both the false teachers and the ones who follow false teachers because with both of them, I mean, like you said before, a lot of times it creeps in subtly and then the the false teachers who were Christians then go for the weaker members of the congregation. So I really think this could be this could be a situation describing both of them involved. I mean, it certainly could, but I mean, either way, it's, it's the same. It's not a situation we want to be in. You're right. That's the diplomatic answer, anyway. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. I've always had um, trouble with passages that indicate different levels of reward at the end. Um, like teachers will be judged more harshly for, for their responsibility in that. Um, and so I just was wondering what their state would be worse. Is there something to that, to different levels of punishment or reward? I believe the Bible teaches different levels of punishment, but only one level of reward. That's what I think. Um, Luke 12 seems pretty strong. Those who didn't know and didn't do received few stripes. Those who knew and didn't do received many. I've taken the end of 20 to mean their state. I've always taken that their, the latter end is worse than the punishment. Is that what you're indicating? I heard, I don't know how you phrase it, but they'll be harder to reach. That they're worse off personally in God's sight. Or, I don't know, that, that they are harder to reach now after turning away from God than they were before. Is that what you meant by? Or do you remember saying that? Well, <laughs> it's been two minutes. <laughs> Um, I guess I'm not, I, I'm probably like Logan is, uh, I, maybe a little bit of both. Certainly, I think they're in a more desperate situation, you know, in terms of being harder to reach and all that. But I think it's also just a more abysmal state. I mean, you've had all this, and you threw, turned it away, you threw it away, you know, how horrifying I mean, I would think the punishment in hell would be a whole lot worse mentally when you knew you'd had all that. 
Um, so I guess I'm not really necessarily saying one or the other, maybe both. I think there are clearer passages, certainly, to deal with degrees of punishment in hell. And I don't know, you all may not agree with that. Well, I don't know, that, that's kind of hard for me, because, I don't know, maybe even, it may be just a basic motivator, you know, you don't want to go to hell, that may move you to do better things that come to the Lord better. Um, but it just seems like, if someone's like, hey, if I'm a basically good person, I only get the, you know, least amount of hell that I can, you know, and I, I'll take my chances with that. I, I don't know. It's hope for a little punishment. Well, I guess my concept is <laughs> that, you know, all punishment in hell is horrible. It's all banishment from God. So there's nothing, there's no no punishment you enjoy. Um, and I don't know, I mean, when we think like that, wow. <laughs> sure. I mean, tell me, you know, I want to be eternally banished from God and suffering in hell with a little bit lighter punishment than, you know, Adolf Hitler or something. I mean, it doesn't seem like that would be that great. And I wonder if the person is thinking that if they're not in this worst category. The person who knows enough to think that way, I don't think there's much excuse for that person. So I think probably what they ought to be thinking is, man, I'm going to be in the hottest part. I don't know. Do you think that I might not understand the implication of it, but the Hebrew 6 have anything to do with it about saying it, it is impossible to restore against repentance so long? Well, I think, you know, people get to the point where they cannot return back to God. So, yeah, maybe in that sense. But is it specifically they're talking about the one who is, who is known and then turned away? I think so. Yeah, yeah I think so. Uh, in 20 uh, uses the word uh, pollution for defilement. I just said the same thing. Uh, it just reminded me of I mean, how we deal with physical pollution. Uh, it's very, I mean, it's a difficult process. It takes a lot of our technology to make air pure again. It's taken a long time for us to figure out how to do that, or water, or whatever. And how difficult it is to be polluted and to change that to be pure again. That that step is huge. And that's that's what Jesus has done for us. It's another another way to look at how far we've come just by submitting to his grace and, and his will for us. Uh, letting letting his grace take effect. How big of a change that is. I don't know if we'll ever understand how much that is, but it's, it's huge. Absolutely, and to turn our back on that then is just so much more outrageous. Very good. Other thoughts on chapter 2, any of this? What else are you going to teach today? <laughs> Nothing, it looks like. I was going to have taught Amos, but... Is that what you all came to hear? They came to hear Second Peter and then Amos. But did they need Amos? 
Well, nah. I think Amos is sort of indispensable. Now we're gonna we'll we'll not go into Amos. We'll do it. We'll do Amos another time or whatever. It's cool that uh, for me, I think this is awesome. I didn't think I could get more than an hour and a half out of Second Peter, so I'm really happy. Well, where were you all? <laughs> <laughs> does, does everybody usually talk like this, or did I just start us away? This is pretty normal for yeah, us. Normal. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. I mean, the more discussion, the better. Definitely, is an indicator of your spirituality. How much? discussion you can get out of a particular book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. I'm so pleased. <laughs> well, since we're not going to go to Amos. <laughs> oh, no. We are going to go to Amos. And, I, and I, what this is worth, I don't know. Um, and, and the experiences, you know, again, we sometimes we talk to people about the religious experiences that, you know, it's always founded on the Word of God. But I can tell you this from my experience. Um, when I left the Lord many years ago and lived in the world, I became a very hardened person. And I mean, I, I mean, things I wouldn't have done, I started doing, I mean, profanity in the bars and stuff. And I became a very hardened person. And I don't know if all this applies to that. But if it had not been, probably been for my mother dying in her sleep and me living that way, I would probably still be in the world today. It became that much a part of me that I despised religion. I was not brought up that way. But I came to where I despised religion. I would, I would argue with people and make fun of them which I would not. I used to take God's name in vain, which I never was taught to do. And so there was a hardness to that second time of turning my... Because I'd come to a knowledge of the truth. I mean, I'd grown up in the denomination. I learned the truth and fell away from it. And I became a different person. I became like the animals described in that, in that passage. And a lot of times when we get like that, I think the Lord deals with us in hard ways, and it will be something that will be very difficult to wake us up and shake us up to say, you better wake up. And God's not playing a game. Do you have an idea as to why the tendency is to become more hardened after you've gone back? And again, that's that's the experience thing. I don't think everybody becomes like that, you know, but... For me, it did because I wanted to be free. I'd grown up religious all my life, and I, my dad married a woman that had three sons. They were in drugs, and all of them had girlfriends. I was going to church, didn't have any. And I thought, I want some of that. And I got plenty of it. I got a belly full. Well, that's the promising them freedom that becomes life. You know, you see, you know, why do, why do the commercials never show the other side? Of the, of the drinking, for example. <laughs> you never see the reality. You always see the glamour and the glitz and the whatever. It makes it look like so much fun. But, you know, the devil hides the reality. Good points. I'm glad you said all that. It's helpful. I wish I didn't have to. I wish you didn't either. Other thoughts?
how about chapter 3, verses 1 and 2? This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the Holy Prophet and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostle. That remind you of anything? <clears throat> First Peter. <laughs> yeah. And, and reminds you of what he said earlier in chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. You know, he's he is reminding them again, trying to get them to remember. But this is the second letter. And so, yeah, I think it's easiest to take that as First Peter. It wouldn't have to be First Peter. Now, obviously, there were letters written by the apostles that we don't have recorded. You know, Paul wrote, you know, Corinthians 1a and, you know, Corinthians one and one and a half. What does it? The, who is it? Ben, ben that says one and a half Corinthians or something like that. And you had the Epistle of Laodiceans that Paul wrote and things like that. So he might have written another one we just don't have that he's referring to. But I don't have any particular reason to think that it wouldn't have been, you know, First Peter. Obviously, if he's referring to First Peter, then this letter was addressed to the same group. You know, that would that would be the the helpful part of that if that's the case. But he's trying in this second letter to stir them up, stir up their sincere mind by way of reminder. He, they've got a sincere mind, a mind not warped by sensual passion. And, and, you know, he wants them to remember what the prophets had said. He wants them to remember what the Lord said through the apostles. You know, that's what they need to go back to and constantly be remembering, constantly be referring back to, you know... He's so, you know, earnest about them not letting go of this teaching that they had received. Comments and questions? All right. Three to seven. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. <clears throat> following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise that is coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintained this, it escaped their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. For by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. All right. Knowing this, first of all, <laughs> he says that a few times through here, doesn't he? Uh, Almost the end of the letter. Yeah. <laughs> He's still good his first point. Well, you know how it is. Uh, 120 would be uh, a passage to compare, perhaps. <laughs> Uh, but know this first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying where is the promise of his coming now these guys were saying that eh, he's not going to come back you know where, 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 is the, where is his coming you know where is any evidence that he's going to return the ironic thing is the existence of these mockers is a proof of what they deny. Because we know that in the last days, that's who will come. 
So the fact that they've come is almost a sign of the fact the Lord will return. That's what the Lord said would happen in the last era before he came back. Uh, So they actually almost defeat their own cause by their mocking. But notice that this mocking and denying the Lord's return is tied in with following after their own lusts. Why are they denying the Lord's return? Because they are doing what they want. Because they're self-indulgent. Self-indulgence leads to skepticism. It, you know, it's true that thinking influences behavior, but it's also true that behavior influences thinking. What they were doing changed what they believed. They were living self-indulgent lives, therefore they decided not to believe that the Lord was going to come back to punish. So often we think people don't believe because of intellectual doubts. But Jesus would say in John 3, 19-21, it's more because they hate the light because their deeds are evil. That's why they don't come to the light. We often believe what we want to believe for other reasons than our actual rational uh, thinking process. So, because of their own lusts, they deny the promise of his coming. And their evidence? Oh, ever since the father fell, fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing's ever changed. Nothing ever will change. There's a debate about this, but the fathers fell asleep. Who would the fathers refer to, probably? Patriarchs, maybe? I think so. I think that's the more common uh, definition of the fathers in the New Testament. I see no reason to think it otherwise, even though there is some debate about that. I come in some questions through verse 4. When I look at this, verses 4 and 5, I just think, I just think, it's, sometimes I want to look at this and think, how on earth could Peter not have lived in the 21st century? This is so, this is exactly what the, what modern day America thinks. when, when they say, where's the promise that was coming for ever since our fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's almost word for word what people say today. You know, nothing's ever changed. Everything is the way it has been. And then verse 5 says, it escapes their notice by the word of God that heaven existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by, by water. Well, that is exactly, the ignorance of that is what evolution came from. Well, the evolutionist says, everything's always continued to change. Their whole dating methods are based upon the uniformitarian assumption that nothing's ever changed. So really, that is the premise of evolution. But but the fact is, there's something they are not taking into account. And that is, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Now, they're not considering the creation. And think about the relevant details of the creation. How was it that God created the heavens and the earth, according to verse 5? Or according to Genesis 1? Even prior to that. Yes. Remember what Genesis 1 is. And... 
God said. This is the summary of the and God says. It's by the word of God that these things happen. <coughs> if you look at what God has already done by his word, you will not doubt anything he's promised. God's word was able to create the heavens and the earth. And he created the earth out of water and by water. What does he mean by that? That's exactly right. And God separated the waters from the waters. And then separated the waters from the waters. He separated the waters into like the, the water vapor up above and the water on the earth. And then he separated the waters on the earth between the water and the dry land. So the earth was formed out of water and by water. And ironically, through which, I think through the word and water... The word that that world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Isn't that ironic? The very element through which God had formed the earth became becomes the agent of the earth being destroyed. It was destroyed just like it was made by water and the word. God used the word and water to make the earth. He uses His word and water to destroy the earth in the flood. So the very element from which the earth was originated was used to destroy it. Don't tell me that everything's always continued the same. It hasn't always continued the same. Because the world was destroyed. And it was created. Yeah. So, things haven't continued the same. Comments and questions through verse 6. That's a lot about several times when the foolish people, the people that are empty headed say where is God there is no God but it's, it's almost the same as when you're denying his promises you're denying that he even really exists you're, you're taking away the power that he has in your own mind uh, you're, just, you're just denying that God even exists you don't believe in Are these the same false teachers from chapter 2? I think so. So verses 1 and 2 here are just kind of a little uh, interlude or whatever. Yeah, they're kind of a transition from the general description of false teachers to dealing with what they were actually saying. That's what I would say. Interesting that well them saying where is the promise that he's coming. Like even today there's there is a theory that, that he's already come. Like there's there's still that around seventy fifty theory and like so that's still not still something we deal with today. Well and yeah, plenty of people who don't think he's gonna return ever. Yeah. And certainly live like it. Something else I was thinking about what there's this idea also of ex nihilo, like that um, in the beginning everything came out of, out of nothing. But it seems to me from what it says here, and also from the language in Genesis 1, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but that there was this primordial water that he brought it out of. I mean, not that not that, that was 
somehow beyond God. I mean, you know, or something, but that's not quite how he chose to do it. It's different. I would say there's kind of two stages in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that creation, from everything we know, would be ex nihilo, you know, out of nothing. Uh-huh. But after he created the heavens and the earth, then he gave form to it. It was The earth was formless and void. So then he gave form to it in days one through three, and he filled it, filled the void, in days four through six. The creation of those six days was not ex nihilo. It was the giving shape and, and filling to what he had created from nothing in Genesis 1. I believe Hebrews 11 says that he created the earth from nothing. Um, well, what what is what seen was not made out of things which are visible. Hebrews 11, 3. Yeah. So. Um, you don't think that the first the first statement could be just like a summary statement? Suppose that maybe you're saying that uh, when God originally created the earth, it was all water. Yes, I think it was. Yeah, I don't mean by that that there wasn't any solid land. I don't mean it was just a mass of water, but it, it was. Covered. So more the fact that it was immersed in water. Yes. Do you agree with that? Gary, since the angels thing, and now the earth thing. I don't know where I'm going here. <laughs> the earth thing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand what you're saying, so I'm, I'm brain dead. I, I've got so much information in my pea brain, it's about to explode. So. <laughs> well, take cover, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm driving home. <laughs> oh, I don't really like about <laughs> reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You know, if God's word created, and if God's word destroyed the world through the flood, then by God's word, he's decreed another judgment, a judgment of fire, that's designed to destroy ungodly men. Hello, false teachers. You know, these very ones that are denying that he'll come are the ones that he will destroy with the fire. And you can trust that because if God's word created and God's word destroyed with the flood, then God's word can be trusted when he says he's going to destroy by fire. I think that's pretty powerful. Are you referring to that chapter 2? When it's talking about water and fire. No, but that's a good thing to refer back to. Yes. Yeah. Well then, I'll Yeah, I think just as he mentioned water and then destruction by water and then destruction by fire, in those cases, so here also it's destruction by water and then destruction by fire. Yeah. When I was talking with the Jehovah's Witness people. 
time. They the earth is gonna stay here anymore while I'm on it. And so I brought up this passage and they said, Well, it's paralleled with the flood and the flood didn't destroy the earth. Um, so this fire, yeah, there might be some bad things that happen, but it's not gonna destroy the earth. And I didn't know what you might say about that. They might be right. I mean, yeah. but as... Uh, yeah, I'm not, I, I mean, I think, yes, I don't think you can say that the destroying necessarily means taking the world out of existence. When he destroyed the world with the flood, the, the ball, the sphere still remained. The world that was on it was destroyed. It may be that, I, I don't think it's out of, out of reason to consider that same possibility. I don't know that we've got anything that's very clear in defining what will happen to the earth as such or to the universe as such when Jesus comes back. I think there are some statements that on first reading would make you think they're totally eliminated. I think there are other statements that on first reading would make you think they will go through some sort of renovation process and be a part of the whole world that God dwells in. If anything, there would be an indication that it would become part of heaven. Yeah, well, heaven is where God is. Because I've also heard the other that it would be burned by fire and it would be where hell was. I've heard both. And I don't know about that one. That might be a little harder to swallow. But um, there's just some passages that are a little difficult, including this one that we're going to look at, to know exactly what he's saying. Romans 8 is a tough passage trying to figure out what he's trying to say in terms of the future of the earth. I, the Jehovah's Witnesses are totally wrong because they have a separate hope. They have the 144,000 being in heaven with God and then the great multitude being here in paradise on earth. I don't know what paradise is without God, but, you know, that dual hope, I think, is totally wrong. We have one hope. There's no separate dis distinction. But whether or not there can, whether or not we ought to think of heaven as including somehow a, a re revived universe, uh, renovated universe or something, or whether or not we ought to think of this universe as being just totally wiped out of existence and will be in a you know a, a different realm, I'm not sure, and I really don't care as long as the Lord is there. But I would not that on that point I would not argue strenuous, strenuously with. But certainly on this dual hope, and on the whole things they talk about yeah. and what's going to happen in paradise on earth, didn't mind. <laughs> it's really ridiculous. So, so much of a misunderstanding of biblical prophecy. <laughs> Other comments and questions? All right, eight to thirteen. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to His ends. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be 
and holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, here's the thing he's dealing with, is this whole idea of the delay of the Lord's coming as an argument that he's not coming. And so he's trying to explain the delay. You know, why has it been so long? Well, first of all, in verse 8, why has it been so long? Yeah. You know, been very long for who? May seem like a long time to us, but it's not to God. I mean, to him, a day's like a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. So, you may think it's been a long time, but look at it from God's perspective. You know, that may help us explain some passages in the New Testament that would seem to imply the imminence of Jesus' return. Maybe the answer is yes, it is. But from God's perspective, imminent may be a few thousand years. You know, it's imminent in the sense we don't know when it will occur. It could occur at any time. But but from God's perspective, you know, a day, a thousand years, it's about the same. And furthermore, he explains why the Lord has delayed. Why is he delayed? Yeah, exactly. So it's a sign of his patience. Suppose the Lord had returned at a time when you were not serving God faithfully. He could have. He would have had every right to do that, wouldn't he? Why didn't he? Well, because he was patient waiting for you. There may be others he's waiting for. Now, he has not given a blanket promise that he's going to wait for every conceivable person. But his patience has lasted this long so far as he waits for more to come to repentance. He's very But I'm very thankful he waited for me. And, and undoubtedly you are for you. This makes me think something. If that's what God's design is in delaying his return, he wants more to come to repentance. What should I do? Help for help and help other people. Amen. Let's preach Christ. Let's bring more people to repentance. That's the whole reason he's delaying his coming. That's how important that is to him. Shouldn't that be important to us? I think that's a good reason why we go out and preach the gospel to every creature. I didn't hear your It sounded like you were saying what might be someone, how might someone react oh. to that. And you could just see some some of the people that Paul refuted saying, well, if we just keep refusing to submit, then God won't come. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's probably risky business. <laughs> yeah. If we don't teach anyone, he won't come. He's waiting for those to be taught. Risky business also. Now, he doesn't say it'll be forever. But he's delayed this long because of his patience, not because, you know, he's, you know, just kind of lazy or indifferent or 
you know, isn't really going to be able to come back or whatever. It's not that at all. It's for us. And he makes the point then in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. <laughs> don't, don't let that make you think he won't come. It will come. Like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be something. And there's more textual questions about that than nearly anything. New York Tender has burned up. Discovered maybe a better rendering or found or laid bare. A lot of possibilities there. Um, so that makes that really difficult to know what he's saying. But the overall idea is don't think the day of the Lord's been called off. He's coming back and wow, it'll be devastating. Now what should that mean for us? Here is where I think Peter comes back to his point. His point is, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? If he's going to come back and he's going to destroy the world you know, how should that make you live? Think about it from the standpoint of just how this world is going to be gone. Anything you want to say about the earth and the universe, this world will be gone. The, the world of people and affairs and, and so forth, at the very least, there'll be nothing here like it is now. Everything about this life will be gone, at the very least. So, what are we doing when we are so frantic to try to get ahead in this life? It's like people scurrying to get the best deck chair on a sinking ship. <laughs> <laughs> that's not exactly a bright endeavor you know you're investing in some firm that's just about to crash why this won't last when he tells us about the Lord's return and what will happen this is not to satisfy our curiosity it's not to make us say Oh, wow, that's interesting. We go back to the way we used to live. This is to get us to change. You know, if this is true, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You know, you ought to be oriented to thinking about and ready for the Lord to return. And look at what's going to happen. You know, this world will be destroyed and according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Your best bet? Get ready for that world. And it's a world characterized by righteousness. That's what you really need to do. Is, you know, I mean, you're going to, uh, you know you're going to move to Brazil, to, uh, you know, in, in a year. So what do you do? And it's going to be for the rest of your life. You're going to be a Brazilian from, from there on out. So what do you do in this year? Well, you get all wrapped up and involved as much as you can with everything here and you don't think a thing about Brazil. That'd be stupid. You, you buy as much and you invest as thoroughly. You become as attached as possible. No. You start preparing. You enroll in Portuguese 
you know, this afternoon. And, you know, you start getting everything ready and oriented and getting, you know, accustomed to what it's going to be like. You know, it's a world in which righteousness dwells. So you need to live righteously and get ready for the transition to that world. Not cling on to the stupid trivialities of this life. I think a lot of Peter's point he comes down to in these verses. You know, clearing away the garbage of the false teachers, you know, this world's going to be destroyed. What should you do? How should you live? Comments and questions. Michael's powerful. When you see this in context, wow. This is his exhortation. You live right. Standing on your promises. Amen. Somebody said said we should be standing on the promises when we're usually sitting on the premises. <laughs> yeah. Alright, how about 14 to 18? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. These are some things, in, uh, there are some things in them which are hard, that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, do you see that? Verse 12, looking for the day of God. Verse 13, looking for new heavens and new earth. Verse 14, look for these things. Since we are awaiting and eager and anticipating these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. You see how we are going back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5, applying all diligence. Now he says it again in 3.14. Um, in in, in, in um, two, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, we talked about the knowledge of God. And he'll do that in verse 18. So he's really tying this back up, you know, and, and touching on those same points. And what he says is, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Now, it's not going to be easy because the world tries to get us to fit in with worldly lifestyle and values. We've got to work hard and be diligent to be different, to be spotless and blameless. I go back to 2.13. The false teachers were stains and blemishes, but we are to be spotless and blameless. Just like a sacrificial lamb, just like Jesus. And
and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's how we ought to look at the Lord's delay. It's our salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You know, he, he cites Paul as someone who wrote these things also. Almost like he's appealing to the, to the revelation that Paul gave. But he said, now watch it. Because these false teachers, they take what Paul wrote and they distort it. Literally, they, they stretch it out on a rack and torture it. They just they take the scriptures and they, they, they twist them all around to force them to say what they want. That's what the unlearned do. Because after all, Paul said some things that were hardly understood. Not everything was easy about what he said. And, and you know a false teacher will always capitalize on that. You look at it. False teachers will use the most difficult passages because they're the easiest ones to twist without people realizing it. And so they'll take those hard passages and they'll twist them all around to their own destruction. Be on guard about that. Now, in the process of that, what does he imply about Paul's writings in verse 16? They're scriptures. They're scripture. Just as they do the rest of the scriptures. He's, he's saying like, you know... Um, kind of expected because that's what they've done with all the scriptures, but he's putting what Paul wrote on the level of scriptures. That's unusual. I mean, the New Testament is just being written. So for him to call what Paul wrote scripture as the other scriptures are scriptures is pretty impressive. There's a passage where Paul does the same thing, where he cites a New Testament passage as scripture. You know what passage that is? Some of you guys should. It's 1 Timothy 5.18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages, which is for the living. He calls both the Old Testament and the New Testament scripture. comments and questions through verse 16. Is he connecting the idea that it's, they're hard to understand and some people twist them with the idea of what he, with specifically a twist and it's hard to understand about what he wrote about. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, what he was saying from verse 15 that he wrote about. Perhaps. Maybe a little bit more general, too. Well, this guy doesn't want to be left like that, does he? Do I understand your question, clearly? Well, it says, okay, um, it talks about the patience of God and salvation, and Paul wrote about that, too, um, in his letters. And it talks about them being hard, what he wrote was hard to understand, so people twist them. Specifically, the writings about patients of the Lord. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not just about that. Not so much, okay. Mine has a, yours 
your version seems to have like a continuous sentence. Mine there, where uh, where it talks, it has kind of like two sentences. So I kind of separates the ideas, but I didn't know yeah. they were supposed to be connected or not. I don't know that I would anyway. So he says in 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. You know, don't listen to these guys. You know already you've been warned. Don't, don't listen and fall away from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's our antidote. Grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Because we need to know this well so that we can refute the false teachers so that we're not vulnerable to their twisting the scriptures. And then he says about Jesus, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is really a, I mean, this letter really gets down to business and does it the whole time. And I mean, you know, God's given us what we need to live right. It makes all the difference. And, uh, you know, I've already, I've all, th- th- there's plenty of good evidence about the Lord's return, the transfiguration, the scriptures. But there's these false teachers who he read the pedigree of. Then he says, you know, when they tell you the Lord's not coming back, they have forgotten some relevant facts. He will come back and this is how you ought to live. And don't listen to them when they twist the scriptures. So he's really, this is really a, an exhortation to holiness and to, to righteous living. And in the process, an expose of these false teachers who because of their wickedness were twisting the scriptures. That's what I see. Comments and questions. caught this before in 15 briefly mentions talking about it, the idea that Paul didn't get Paul wasn't the origin of what he said yes was given to him yes like the prophets yes yes this is this is it's exactly right he wrote by we'd say by inspiration but Peter would say by the wisdom given to him same thing as saying inspiration God gave him the wisdom to write these things. It's clear that Peter thought highly of Paul. There was his chance to get him back for Galatians. That's exactly right. He did. <laughs> he thought Paul's stuff was hard to understand. <laughs> Is that the pot calling the kettle black? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I agree with him. Since uh, Galatians has already been referred to, I guess I can say this, but uh, I think it's an impressive Peter's attitude towards the uh, being rebuked because when the opportunity comes up to bring up Paul he doesn't he doesn't say here's what Paul did wrong because because here Paul re but where he rebuked me but instead he refers to Paul as as a respected individual who wrote scripture I mean that was a perfect opportunity for Peter if he wanted to to get him back but instead he is apparently still accepted that and been rebuked and still has very high authority or very high opinions of Paul. Absolutely. Our beloved brother Paul is a pretty uh, encouraging thing to say about 
I mean, wouldn't it be really, uh, really, I don't know, disappointing to know that Peter had reacted to righteous correction in a bad way? You know, Peter gets Paul helping him by exhorting him to do the right thing, and he keeps the chip on his shoulder because of it. That would really lower your opinion of Peter. You know, that's that's not a Christian thing to do at all. Christians appreciate counsel and advice and even rebuke that they need because it helps them be right with God. Is there an example of some that were expecting the Lord to come back right away so they quit working and doing everything? You see, that's what everybody says about 2 Thessalonians 3, but we never studied 2 Thessalonians, I don't think, together, have we? I think that's not the right interpretation of Second Thessalonians 3, personally. Um, because I think it's the benevolence that the Christians were offering that was encouraging these people to quit working. Um, and his point is, you know, we didn't burden anybody else. And you ought to eat your own bread. But especially 2 Thessalonians 3.13. He, he said that these people ought to work and, and eat their own bread. But then he turns to the other Thessalonians. You know, you've got this group that's quit working. He really exhorts them strongly to go back to a disciplined life of work. But then he turns to the Thessalonians in verse 13, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Don't let their abuse of the system keep you from being generous. So I really think it's much more likely that the Thessalonians were just abusing Christian generosity and benevolence. I don't see much reason to think that they thought that the Lord was going to return right away and they quit their jobs. To me, that's just kind of imported. I don't see that in the context. I think this is the passage I always hear used for that. Do you? What, what? Is there, are there other passages people use to try to say that some of the early Christians quit their jobs to wait for the Lord? Wait for the Lord. No, that's the only one I can think of. But I mean, a lot of passages, you know, James five talk about brethren wait for the coming of the Lord. You know, talk about the coming of the Lord. Um, Philippians four, the, the Lord is near. Of course, that could be in, in space, in, in space instead of time. But I mean, most of the commentaries that you read, I mean, the, most of the writers are, are pre-millennial, and you know what, I, I told you a while back that um, when I was a Pentecostal, you know, every Sunday we heard, give 10, give 10% and God, well, give $10 and God will give you, or give God 110 or he'll give you 100 and, you know, 10 times what you give, and we heard about the uh, the rapture and the end of the world and, and miracles come be healed, but I mean, it was always... You know, the end of that was something that was hard to overcome because you read all these passages talking about the coming, and all the commentators well, they expect the Lord immediately to come. Maybe that's not even the subject you're on, but that's where I went with that. It's raining, did you know it? Yeah. <laughs> that was raining. So with all that. Yeah, but no, but but have you have, do you agree with me on Second Thessalonians three? Is that a reason? I never heard that interpretation. That's a great interpretation. I mean, that would make sense. Yeah. That's what I like about hanging around with you and making things. It just gives me a <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I just I guess I question assumptions people make. You know, we we, we draw these elaborate schemes 
But like you start reading the passage, it doesn't say anything like that. <laughs> so I just think we just sort of imagine that in Second Thessalonians three. And the only thing I see in the context that would make me think there was something is this exhortation to the brethren not to do, grow weary of doing good. So that's that's what I think about that. Well, this was great. Man, thank you for doing this. Sorry it took me forever to get through this. I mean, really-